Welcome everyone to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. It is amazing Thursday. I hope everyone's having an amazing Thursday. And we are on a mission to make things happen better, to transform healthcare. And today we have a special guest, Chris Esquerra, and he is an MD. He uh, started out, I love it. He started out as a psychiatrist. Um, so I believe that that makes a big difference. And I think he can share a lot about what he's doing. I'm not going to read all the way through his bio because we want him to talk. There's a lot on his bio, but I will just highlight a few things. He is the chief medical officer with Health Plan of San Mateo. And um, he also is advisor of several different organizations. He's very involved in the community and uh, advisor of several different startups, Periscope, Care Nodes. He has, uh, he's a health executive there. Um, you're involved with the Project Angel Food, which sounds really fascinating. Sounds like that's some alignment there, I would say, with health equity. Um, and let's get into it, Chris. I, I um, Is it okay if I call you Chris or yeah. how, how do you want? Okay. Chris is great. Awesome. And so if you could just fill in the gaps, just help our audience know a little bit about you, uh, just uh, just a, uh, you know, 30,000 foot or however you'd like to just share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so as he mentioned, I'm a psychiatrist uh, trained and uh, sort of that's how I grew. I grew up professionally. So in residency training in actually a community based training setting, San Mateo Psychiatry Residency Program. Um, and so from the get-go, we were in, embedded in, in serving individuals in the community, individuals covered under Medi-Cal, which is California's version of Medicaid, um, in particular those with um, you know, requiring mental health services that were much more on the specialty side of things. Um, and But I also had a systems bias in terms of really wanting to understand, you know, I can see my patients and, and, and work with them and then continue to hone my therapy skills, medication, treatment, just all of those pieces of being a good psychiatrist. And yet there were all these other things and factors that they had to deal with. Um, and, and so under, starting to understand those commonalities and, and understanding that this is a systematic piece that I, in, in my own sort of you know, clinic, can't necessarily address, got me to start thinking, well, what else is there? How do we begin to do this? And that led me, at least starting on the provider side, how do we design um, care delivery and systems that start to address things much more broadly, more holistically in a more integrated way? So some really fun things around integrating primary care and behavioral health with an angle towards as well, addressing um, social needs. Um, one of the coolest things that we got to see was if you started addressing social connectedness, people started feeling healthier. They were more engaged. Uh, you know, we, we were able to correlate that to just better outcomes around cholesterol control, diabetes control, in addition to better mental health outcomes. Um, and then moved over to the health plan side, specifically, specifically focused on um, Medicaid populations, dually eligible populations, understanding that there's a lot of opportunity and creativity when you have the levers of um, really helping influence the care delivery system, um, the payment models and the systems they're in, quality, and, and, and really then helping understand 
where regulations are supportive, but also understand where regulations may not be supportive and how do you first work around them, but then begin to influence them so that they're updated so that it's actually beneficial. Um, so that's a bit of the work that I've been going through. I also um, really enjoy supporting both nonprofit and startup organizations that are in with, with a similar mission and alignment. Um, definitely a shout out to Project Angel Food. They're a, a long time organization. They actually started off just making meals for folks with HIV AIDS in the eighties mm -hmm. who couldn't leave their homes. Mm. Um, and then they realized that from that work, um, as, as the years progressed, that they could actually support individuals with other chronic health conditions that, again, could not necessarily leave their home. Um, and, you know, many years later, um, helping now, now serving on their board, um, just recently, last couple of weeks, they served their 16 millionth meal, um, mm. medically tailored meal. And so they're there. But as a nonprofit, they're learning to now work with healthcare and mm -hmm. be part of that process, especially in California with um, Medi-Cal and community supports and medically tailored meals as a benefit. Um, as you can imagine, that's in and of itself a power dynamic and a challenge of nonprofit that has never worked with healthcare, all of a sudden having to understand all of the parts of healthcare and, and processes and what is a healthcare contract with a health plan look like. Um, but so just wonderful work that they're doing and, and really supporting the community. Well, this is great. And uh, for those who aren't aware, this is all about achieving health equity through holistic care. We're going to be doing some deep dives on this. Chris is going to be leading us through this. And so um, we're just going to start it off. Uh, you know, we might need to start with some definitions, health equity and holistic care. So so for the audience, could you help us understand how those two are connected? Absolutely. So when, when we think about health equity, where, you know, there, there's, a, there's a typical sort of, let's, let's think about it from outcomes and disparate outcomes and understanding the reasons for said outcomes. Um, and, and therefore, if we, were, if we are able to address the factors that result in the disparate outcomes, um, therefore, we might achieve health equity. Um, I think a broader piece to add to that and enhance that the mindset and definition of health equity really moves us towards more of this concept of justice. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that we have, uh, as a country, uh, historically have had structural uh, structures and, and things that have actually made it difficult for groups, individuals, um, you know, whether it's uh, you know, structural racism, structural paternalism, all of those pieces that have just made it difficult from to, in order to actually um, live in a way that's healthy. So whether it's discrimination around housing, discrimination around where you are able to live and therefore transportation, food deserts and where things get built, um, where you have greenery versus not, um, where freeways are built versus not, that has an effect on asthma, for example. Mm -hmm. um, these are the pieces um, that we need to be paying attention to. And so from that kind of justice framework, it's not just about, oh, we have disparities and we therefore need to correct them, is how is it that for those under-resourced populations and therefore, well, frankly, left behind populations, mm. how do you not just work towards equity or making it equal, how is it that you actually take that center the needs of those populations and rethink about think about a redesign that actually 
benefits, but actually ends up benefiting, benefiting everyone universally. Um, so it's actually applying the concept of universal design. Um, you know, I, I love always using the example of uh, curb cuts and how, um, you know, initially the design was for individuals who are wheelchair users so that they can, you know, quick, you know, go, go down to, to, from the sidewalk to the street. Um, and turns out it's really beneficial for everybody else. Parents with strollers, um, folks with more mobility issues but are still walking, um, frankly, able-bodied folks who, you know, well, they just don't want to step off and trip. And so there's, there's that concept of equity. And then when we think about holistic care and putting that together, it really is this component of um, redesign and really thinking about healthcare delivery in a, again, a broader way. Mm -hmm. um, so part, I was very fortunate to be part of a group uh, committee with the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. In 2019, we put out a report of integrating social care into um, healthcare delivery in the US. And part of that is really broadening that definition of how, what we mean to be thinking about with health. Um, and that there is now this incorporation of addressing social needs and knowing that that affects health in very positive ways and addressing all of these other factors. Um, and so when we think about holistic care, we're really thinking about stitching together these interventions that will directly affect someone's overall well-being and hopefully then lead to better health outcomes. Wow. I, I, what, I loved how you brought in universal design, like uh, just the simple that isn't simple, but just the design of a walkway. Uh, so it just makes it easier for everyone. And I, I would love to, to understand like how you are doing this uh, as a chief medical officer. Like, how do you start um, like, like if you would designing a plan to do that in that um, way? Uh, that that to me, I don't know how many lives you have, and um, you know, it, it, it. I don't think it really matters, but I'm sure it really probably does matter when you get for actuary data and how you deliver it. But I would love to think on how how do you do that um, at the plan level? Like, what are you doing to make sure you're delivering that? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. So real quick, Health Plan of San Mateo, we're a local uh, plan here in California focused on um, Medi-Cal population. So we have about 160,000 total covered lives, of which um, we have a number that with, with Medi-Cal, um, California's Medicaid. We also have duly eligible individuals for both Medicare and Medicaid, Medi-Cal. Um, so in an integrated product, uh, we call it Care Advantage. So that's about 9,000 individuals. Um, and we actually... Well, we hope that it will uh, it will pass through with the governor's budget in California, but we do actually serve um, in partnership with our county um, individuals who are undocumented and therefore wouldn't qualify just yet for Medi-Cal. And so we it's functionally like Medi-Cal, but uh, we call it ACE, Access to Care for Everyone. Um, and we also have a small commercial product for individuals who are per, uh, personal care workers for our members who have Medi-Cal. Um, and making sure that they're covered as well, paying attention to caregivers. And so, uh, so how do we do, do this work? Um, and I, I start with the fact that it's a we, it's a team. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's, 
fundamentally, there's the work we could focus on and the, on, on, the, on the doing. I think equally important, perhaps even more, is really the mindset. Mm-hmm. And, and being able to step back and say, yes, we can, we can analyze the data, we can do all these things to begin to identify disparities, and, and yes, we're doing all of that. Um, it's more of the mindset of, well, what is it such that organizationally, the mindset of health equity, e- even with the justice framework in mind, how is it that everyone starts thinking about that? What does that truly mean? And how does how then do we encourage everyone, all, all staff to actually apply that? So um, it's great and, and relatively straightforward, for example, for our population health management team and our quality teams to be thinking about this because they're seeing the data in terms of our outcomes. They're seeing, um, you know, they're working to stratify and begin to understand, um, you know, which, which of our subpopulations uh, may need um, different interventions and how we think about this. Um, but more important, actually, or equally important, is to be thinking about other processes. You know, one of the, the things that uh, as a leadership team we have been saying is, how, is, how are we as a health plan making sure that we're not perpetuating mm-hmm. anything systematically that will perpetuate further disparities? What is it in the way that we um, enact policies, have processes, um, have payment models that actually may actually lead to adverse um, situations that are not helpful. And so these, these are the tougher internal questions mm-hmm. um, that makes it so that we become vulnerable to each other and ourselves, but allow, allow ourselves to hold, to be accountable mm-hmm. and, and allow us then to examine what is it that we do and how do we do it? And how are we mindful? How do we, how do we even approach populations? How is it that, when we're partnering with the community, when we're trying to learn and understand, it's not extractive, it is in partnership, that mm-hmm. we're attending to power dynamics, for example. Now, all this sounds very ephemeral, but the, for a great example of where one wouldn't necessarily readily think operationally in a health plan that you, know, you may start wanting to think about health equity, um, you know, there's all the obvious areas of paying attention to outcomes. Um, Recently, we were having just a discussion around, um, there's this bit, bit of a process in, in the health plan of paying attention to qual- quality issues. Um, we call them potential quality issues. And you know, typically it's, you know, uh, are we seeing de- deviations in uh, standards of care? And how is it that we help our provider network improve or help them correct themselves and things like that? And, and there is a, occasionally we'll get a, a complaint from a member we call our, our population that we can help cover um, as saying that, you know, I had this not great treatment and experience with this provider and it ends up uh, you know, sort of historically, it would be just that they said something they, and the provider responds and they, you know, I didn't say that. And then it sort of ends there because the historic thinking was, well, what do you do with that? We've evolved from that. From a health equity perspective, it's now centering the fact that that member actually had, and real or perceived, does not matter, had a negative experience. And what is it about the system that they tried to engage with healthcare that got them to have that negative experience? And so based on that, it's not, we're not gonna just stop with the provider telling us, well, but I'm, I'm, I always treat my patients this way, or I have this policy, or I, whatever it is. How is it that we then approach 
that provider group, that clinic in a non-punitive way and say, let's talk about how we make healthcare, your clinic, your care more accessible for everybody. What is the approach? How do we think about language? How do we think about things that are said? How do we think about the nonverbal pieces? What does it look like when someone is being taken in? How do we, talk, how do we think about normal routines of privacy and things like that? And, and things that are said, things that are unsaid, the implicit pieces, um, being able to tackle that. And normally you wouldn't think of that unless you actually start having much more of that justice, health equity mindset that it, it's actually leading us to really look at these other processes you wouldn't normally look at. So from my perspective, you know, the, the easy stuff, so to speak, is let's look at the outcomes, let's you know, pull together resources, let's, let's think about a redesign. This is another version of that. Another area of opportunity is payment models as well of what do we begin to incentivize versus not. And so th those are just some examples of how we begin to think about this broadly and how we, we get to do the work. And it, it actually becomes both humbling and really exciting because mm -hmm. now you're not just left with, well, couldn't do anything to how do we make this better? It actually does get into this sense of transformation and redesign. Yeah, I, I really love how you're empowering everyone to be okay with a little bit of discomfort. I think uh, there's something often, uh, you know, I, I used to be in uh, working and, and skilled nursing facilities. And a lot of times there's the, the mentality of <laughs> don't bring up whatever to the boss or, you know, and, and, and really there's so much harm that goes all the way from the staff down to the patient, the residents, what we call them. And, there is something empowering when the boss, i.e. the chief medical officer, the CEO, the, 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 the head provider, the doctors are okay with having these discussions. It's like do no harm, all, all the different processes to get to that. You know, to me, it's like this six sigma of thinking with the whole process where there's no one to blame, like blame no one. But even more than that, you're you're actually creating this space that never existed where there, everyone is empowered in the team, even the member, you know? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think key to that is creating an environment of psychological safety. Mm. And you can't do that just by saying, hey, let's just do this and we're gonna be safe, right? Everyone's safe? No, mm. it doesn't work that way. It, it's building trusting relationships over time, knowing that, um, coming in and being able to um, be vulnerable and to admit to, I will stumble and say the wrong things because I am, I too am still learning. Um, and also acknowledging and actively addressing power dynamics as well. Mm. Um, and, and understanding that no, and, and I'm coming from a place of, of privilege with the fact that I'm a physician, I'm in a health plan, I'm in my, my role, it has authority and all of that. But to be then going into um, a discussion and being able to then lift and elevate um, others uh, in, in, in that power dynamic and being able to acknowledge those pieces and, and give space. It, I think those are the pieces that help create that psychological safety um, to be then allow to have those discussions and to be able to follow through. Um, and that's why the work takes a lot of time.
Well, we have uh, Melanie Mel is just giving you a shout out to, to the 100% agree. Psychologically, uh, psychological safety is, um, there's power in that. And uh, can you share more about that? I think there's something that, that we, I'd love to hear you expound on that a little more. Yeah, I, I'll start with, and, and I'll, I'll go at it actually from a systems perspective. And this was interesting and this actually goes back years uh, a little bit where um, this is in 2014, where we we decided as a health plan that we wanted to uh, address and help individuals who were who were in long term care settings that were raising their hands saying, I want to be able to go back to the community. And but I can't because list of things. Right? I don't have enough caregiver support. I, I lost my housing, um, various things. And we actually erected this whole program with a number of partners, um, you know, two major partner vendors, one Institute on Aging, another that was doing a lot of our intensive case management. Another was Brilliant Corners for housing. They're still our partners now and still doing the work. Um, and then we also brought in a lot of our partners with the county. So behavioral health and recovery services, for example, aging and adult services, um, the county health system, uh, primary care, things like that. Um, and we had a cohort roundtable group of the leaders of the various groups to work through with each other, knowing that this is a systems level intervention. It isn't just find somebody, get them out, find them a home. It, it really was, what are the things we need to be paying attention to systematically? How are we going to get all these supports together? And we needed as leaders to get together regularly um, to form that sense of safety with each other such that we can get to a place where we can then call each other out and, mm -hmm. and be able to say, let's do better. So we couldn't get to let's do better in meeting number one. Meeting number one was, what's your context in all this? Why are we working together? Let's make sure we're all aligned and let's make sure we're all comfortable with each other. That took time. Um, and it set the stage for us actually then to be going to a place of, hey, we're starting to transition folks. You know, Of course, there's this whole program that we had to initiate. But it's actually taking a long time for the in-home supportive services, the personal care services to, to get in. It's taking three months. Can we have that happen sooner? Um, because of that trust in that group, that the agency that was actually in charge of that did their own process improvement work. They were able to get it down to two weeks as opposed to three months. Um, there was some work on the behavioral health side to make sure we can get access sooner um, in terms of outpatient appointments. Um, we got called out as a plan of saying, hey, you, can you work with those facilities? Because the way that the medications are structured are, they don't make sense in an outpatient setting. Can, can we do something better so that the transition is, is worth it? So it allowed all of us to hear that kind of feedback um, to be able then to work together towards that, um, our overall aligned goals. And, and it, but it took that sense of safety so that it didn't, it didn't feel, one, we knew that we weren't about accusing. It, it didn't mm -hmm. feel like we were accusing. And it was about constructive feedback and how we could be better. It also then allowed us to be vulnerable with each other, to be able to say, 
I know I need to improve in this way, but I can't right now because I have these things I'm struggling with, which allowed us to have different discussions of how do we help each other. Mm-hmm. And so I use that as a great example because it's actually that program that has endured and continues to today that actually we, we, we ended up using that as a model to help uh, California actually think about what CalAIM is now. So CalAIM is California's um, advancing and innovating Medi-Cal. It's, it's transformation for the program. And so some of those elements that we were doing paid, you know, paid for by our administrative dollars and through partnerships and things like that, it, those elements are now statewide. And so that's a great example that I, I tend to think of. That's systems leadership. That's how we created psychological safety, not just in a working group in, our, in, in one organization, but amongst multiple organizations. Yeah, that's such an awesome example. And, and I hear it's like once everyone knows that you really genuinely care about the problem and you're in it together, then there's really buy in. Um, but gosh, like you said, there's a process to that. that that's uh, what a great, powerful example. Is that was that under the money follows the, the person sort of thing? Was that the federal initiative that you guys took and ran with it and made it really happen? Money Follows the Person came along a little after. Mm -hmm. What actually spurred this for us was, uh, so San Mateo County, it's in the Bay Area. It's a relatively, from a property perspective, expensive county. It was then, is now. Um, Our skilled nursing facilities, they were closing. And Mm. and that was the impetus because we needed to make sure that there was a flow and that um, our hospitals were yelling at us in terms of placement issues um, skilled nursing facility so where we're pretty much, you know, they didn't have a space. And, and so this was our effort to then say, well, you know what? It started with that problem, but then we saw it from the justice perspective, which is we have individuals who, because of a healthcare issue, got taken away, disintegrated from society and put into an institutional setting. And you know, through their own resilience, those individuals then created their social connections in that institutional setting. However, they were really in the community. So how did, and so really got us to think about how do we help them go back and reintegrate? And so that was really the impetus. It, re- it really wasn't necessarily money follows the person. That, that came later and, and really helps with funding with a number of the other pieces that we were doing, but, um, and then whole person care came after that and sort of built a little further um, and now it's one of our community supports of nursing home transitions. Um, but it, it really was about shortage of beds at the time. It's interesting how constraints can create the greatest opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, so, so, Chris, where should we go now? Uh, we are about uh, a little bit more than halfway through on this awesome conversation. If you had to share the important elements of holistic care regarding health equity, what would that be? So I, I tend to think about the structures that, that embed these concepts and that promote it. And, and so when, when do, what, do we mean, what do I mean by structures? Um, the structures really are around what are the incentives? So payments, incentives around that, uh, payment models. Um, how do we think about the design aspect? Because you can't just throw money at something and assume that all of a sudden, uh, you know, we're going to do something different. 
um, as well as what are the regulations that promote and or hinder this, or, and not just regulations, but other policies, um, even uh, non-explicit policies, sort of we've always done it this way, sort of mindsets. And, and really thinking through how is it that we're mindful of that these structural redesigns. So um, there's definitely been work on the payment model side, paying attention to um, inequities. And, and this is really in the air, arena of analytics and paying attention to risk stratification, understanding that if you go by way only of a cost and utilization perspective to stratify your population, you are invariably leaving out those who never could access care in the first place. Mm -hmm. So by definition, because they never could access care in the first place or don't want to because it, you know, healthcare has not necessarily been very welcoming um, to that population. So, you know, again, historic racism, um, depending on various groups, definitely uh, with our African-American members is then by definition, they have no utilization. Um, and they're not going to pop up in the data that way. So how do you rethink that? Um, so from an incentive payment structure perspective, how is it that there is an incentive uh, to for providers uh, to partner um, with community-based organizations? How do we make sure that community-based organizations in those payment models are also free to be creative um, in how they go about delivering their services. Same thing with providers to be creative in doing that. Um, unfortunately in the US with our fee for service model, um, because the incentive is to do the thing that you're gonna get paid for, you're gonna keep doing that thing. If instead we say, you know, here's a pot of money and these are the expectations that we wanna see. You know, these are the outcomes that we wanna see with very little variation amongst you know, as we stratify based on the population. This is the experience that we want to see based on how, um, you know, your patients, our members are rating you. Um, let's pay attention then to the cost curve as a result, because if people are accessing care and they're actually, you know, getting healthy, ostensibly, they're not necessarily going to the hospital, going to the emergency room as much. So paying attention in that way. So, you know, we call that value-based care. But really from a payment design is, Let's let you be as flexible as possible. In addition, we're gonna nudge you to make sure you're really thinking about the entirety of that individual. And so how is it then that you're going to make sure you're paying attention to their needs around transportation, their needs around nutrition, food, um, other resources in the community, housing, things like that. How do we make sure you get connected to all those pieces too? So it's, it's not in isolation. The design piece, is you know, when I went to med school, when I went, you know, did residency training, and I'm sure in other types of trainings outside of um, being, being a physician, um, you know, social work school, things like that, we, we didn't really get into process redesign. Uh, we didn't get into um, how do I think about uh, running an optimal clinic setting? How do I think about making sure I'm paying attention to referral systems? How do I think, make sure about data, data systems? It's just not part of the training. And so I shouldn't be expecting to ask a primary care clinic, here's some money I would love for you now to completely change how you do things. And, and so how is it then that we support those changes that do need to happen? Um, you know, there are varying mature levels of maturity if we're talking about uh, nonprofits, primary care clinics, whatever it is that, that can 
do that kind of process change or even that kind of uh, transformation. And, you know, being able then to come in and support and support by way of actual staff, uh, sort of what we're, we're thinking through right now as a health plan or support as in here's some money that you can then engage with, you know, some, some other group to be able to continue this improvement transformation work. You know, the nice thing is the state of California is doing the same exact thing uh, and, and focus on small practices in primary care. A number of our other sibling plans in California have been doing investments like this as well. Um, but it's really understanding that redesign and transformation can't just, we can't just say do it. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be done with purpose in mind, with support um, and with, with that aligned vision. So how, how are you supporting the providers? I, I know I, um, about a year ago, was hearing more about the ACO reach. It sounded like that was a great way to empower and bring back primary care, really allow them to own those dollars, own that risk. I mean, I know it's going to be really, I think that it's really, I think it just started this year, 2023. Yep. So we don't know the data. The data is not out. But I'm just thinking that when you talk about fee-for-service, providers that's what they do so they how are you doing the psychological safety helping them along the way to change that how does that look looking like yeah yeah so i'll start with what we have um and i'll start and then i'll kind of finish with where where we're where we're headed what we're thinking mm -hmm. about. one of the really cool things that we have at health plan of san mateo has been the these uh learning collaboratives mm -hmm. and so we've had we have and them with primary care. Uh, we also have it for our hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. And we actually did a com combined hospital skilled nursing facility. Um, it's been a year and a half-ish long cycle with that group and actually how do they work better together? How do we think about throughput and flows? What's, what's our role as a plan? We're actually about to have our last concluding session um, because they actually had a, a number of wonderful work products that came out of it just so that the those two systems groups can actually work better together. Um, that's coming up in May. Our primary care learning collaborative actually was born out of how do we just revamp our quality incentive system, payment system in primary care? And now, and, and it grew from that to how is it then that we work continue, continue to work better together, share best practices. So in that, again, the group getting to know each other over time, there is that safety, they know how to, um, connect with each other, tell us, give us feedback where we need to let us know where they can improve. Now, you mentioned ACO reach. I, I tend to be cautious about programs. I mean, I, I love what ACO reach is doing. Mm -hmm. However, my caution there is it's definitely selecting for providers um, who are at a level of sophistication that they can ingest the data, know what to do with it, have some level of population health management capabilities. Mm -hmm. It's not all providers. Yeah. If I'm especially thinking about our small, medium-sized practices, I'm not sure that the level of population health capabilities are there, let alone data ingesting. Um, and some would be very just happy with an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and some would be very just happy um, converting to an electronic health record. We still have some mm -hmm. providers that still use paper. Um, and so, now it's really thinking about how is it that we um, understand those needs and work in partnership and therefore provide those resources. So that's getting us actually now into 
our current brewing work around primary care investments and really defining those various buckets and understanding there's direct payments, absolutely. There, there's, sort of, there's the sort of the money stuff, which is um, capacity, grant funding, for example, payments, things like that, payment models. That's one bit. Equally, maybe even more important is support in the actual transformation side of things. When we're wanting to really move the needle for everybody, understanding that everybody's gonna have different needs and really getting into advanced primary care practices, um, you know, some groups will probably need um, staff that are right there alongside them to help them with that kind of improvement. Others may need, um, you know, purchasing power that we as a payer can actually, you know, support and lend. And so perhaps we help purchase services or purchase services directly so that they're able to use them. So there's going to be a bucket of intervention, multiple buckets of interventions that we're thinking through. Um, conceptually, this has been already presented to our, our board. Um, it's, all, it's all out there in the minutes. Um, and that we'll be coming back and actually talking through, like, these are the specific investments. Now, I'm talking about primary care. We're talking about providers. We're doing the same thing around dental since um, the, the really fortunate thing at Health Plan San Mateo, we tend to raise our hand for integration early. Mm -hmm. So we're the only plan in California, Medi-Cal right now, where dental is integrated. Uh, we started in January 2022. And so we've been working to, with our dental community as well, and how do we integrate oral health into overall health as well. Now, I don't want to ignore also social service, community-based organization providers, because in my mind, they're also providers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so the attention there as well is, is even further paying attention to power dynamics. You know, for a, a number of community-based organizations have not necessarily worked with healthcare organizations in the past. So one sort of like a routine thing to think about is, well, I just give them a contract, they sign it, and we start doing work. Some community-based organizations, I'll start with, I'll use Project Native Food as an example, never had to de deal with a healthcare contract before and, and never had to deal with information security, HIPAA, mm -hmm. um, all of those pieces. And so gladly from uh, the state perspective, there is this uh, set of technical assistance and funding, it's called PATH, um, and, and really supporting community-based organizations to be able to build that kind of capacity. And that's, that's the sort of partnership as well that we have had locally um, and that's you know, why I lend my support with a number of community-based organizations. Or to simply put, I'm the one that helps them read and understand their contracts um, and then also do process flows. But it's, it's really, there's that extra level of bringing organizations along that may not have worked in healthcare before. It sounds like they're very lucky to have you, Chris, uh, with your, your passion and like the systems thinking approach where you really delight in it. I mean, it's really how you think. Uh, there is so many uh, organizations with these community, you know, all these organizations that are necessary to make healthcare work um, and the details. So they're really lucky to have that your mind is wired and leaning to that. Uh, when when um, I, I'm thinking about the actual, when you bring on these providers, these community-based uh, I love how you're, you're again, creating that psychological safety, kind of walking in their shoes, understanding uh, all those elements. So 
what I, I think it's fascinating also to hear 2022 that you brought dental in. It seems like dental should always have been healthcare. I don't know why that has, and that's a mental health thing too. Why is mental health different than healthcare? But that's a whole nother thing. But what I think, what I, I wonder, are you guys doing blood pressure? Are you integrating that? It seems like the dentist, I mean, also like community health, workers too is a, is a safe and reliable spot to engage people. Tell us a little bit how that sort of flowing back and forth, uh, uh, how you're kind of encouraging that collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll say our mantra is integration, integration, integration. This integration actually just makes things a lot harder. Uh, and it's easy for me to say that. However, you know, there's a, there's enough evidence out there that in an uncoordinated care setting, so individual covered, say by fee for service Medicare, you're kind of on your own to, you know, see your providers and but there's no actual care management coordination versus say a more integrated um, coverage product under Medicare where you have care management, you have that kind of coordination. Individuals are seniors in Medicare who are in that more coordinated setting live longer. We, the, the studies are there. We, it's the same thing they've studied between commercial PPO versus HFO coordination. Same thing. And it's the sort of, of course. Now, so what does that all mean in terms of what we're trying to do? Um, despite some of the carve-outs we, we are managing in California under Medicaid, so uh, some parts of behavioral health, um, pharmacy, uh, some other pieces, we've really worked to integrate as much as possible. So the integration of dental oral health Frankly, in year one is let's make sure we're able to pay claims and have much more of a network. And so the dental network under the state dentical prior to integration in, in Health Plan of San Mateo, we had a, there were about 30-ish uh, contracted dental providers. Um, last we checked, we're over 370. Um, so including specialists and, and multiple things. And so really getting a lot of access. <laughs> Our next step isn't necessarily yet integration, although we're starting mm -hmm. those discussions. Yeah. It actually is looking at the benefit itself and saying, what more do we need to make sure we're covering that actually promotes prevention, that promotes um, good care? And mm -hmm. so we've ex we, we're working to expand that. Go Live is coming soon. Um, the teams are both stressed and anxious and very <laughs> proud that it's all going to go live pretty soon. Um, and, and so they're working on it. Um, now that's leading to discussions with, you know, how is it then that we begin to support members navigating through and following through with dental appointments? How is it that we, we have a partnership with our county actually to promote more orthodontic care, especially for youth who otherwise would not have been getting it in the past. Um, and so that's a partnership that actually has some um, local county tax dollars funding that those services. So we're getting creative. Um, and this is just the beginning. How do we weave it all together? Um, these are the fun discussions that we get to have. They're the challenging things we get to, uh, you know, find solutions for. And, and you know, these, these aren't things that you find right away. Um, and you probably can hear it in my voice in that it's all exciting. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely, it's challenging. Absolutely, it's, it's huge. It's, it's, it's significant. But that's the fun part because we're actually trying to make it better. And, and we're trying to, and we see that it is better. We get that feedback. Um, and where we fail, we try to do better. And we, we, we pause and reflect and we try to see how is it that it works. And so um, 
our hope is similar to the primary care learning collaborative that I, that I talked about. We, we have a dental advisory group where we're hoping to create a learning collaborative around dental as well. We'll do the same thing around integrations um, and, and really use these vehicles as a means to really support that kind of delivery system that if we really think about healthcare design, we really want this design that is really for that individual. And especially for those who have been left out historically um, or just because of the, the structures around discrimination felt that they could not be part of it. How do we design a system that actually is inclusive and centers them? Chris, uh, we were about six minutes out from uh, ending. I have one more uh, thought on uh, moving forward with healthcare, like kind of engaging people, those people like that probably aren't on the radar, that haven't had a claim, that don't want to see a provider. Are you finding, are, are you at that point now? I know you're doing dental, but are you doing community faith-based organizations and other influence, uh, per, you know, influence individuals in those communities uh, to, to really get that outreach? And if so, could you share a little bit about that, how that's happening? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think it's, it's how do we meet our members um, and our community where they are? Um, so, you know, we can, we can send out all the mailings we want. We know that not everyone's going to read this. I, I don't read all the mail. Mm -hmm. I, I get either. We can, we can do phone calls. We could do text messages. We can do all these things. I think it's, it's a multi-layered approach. More important is to really partner with community organizations, our county agencies who are already out there. Right, so now this is all large and ephemeral, and then yes, to, yes, it all makes sense. But what does this mean and look like? Um, a recent fun, well, not relatively recent, but a fun story that I tend to like, just because um, it reminds me of sort of the social media I'm not part of, um, <laughs> and is the the fact that uh, so this would have been a little bit of last year vaccination campaigns, mm -hmm. and we were actually working to uh, promote and enhance vaccination vaccinations around COVID in particular uh, for our youth, teenage youth population. I'm not a youth anymore. In my mind, I might think I still am, <laughs> but our, what our teams engage with a youth advisory council. That council was awesome. So what they, they, they took in all the information, they got it from our health uh, education folks. They, they, they got the content that advisory group, they all created TikTok videos, mm -hmm. spread them around, promoting, using, using the messaging and, and really talking about vaccination and, and really doing that. No one's, young person is not gonna listen to me, mm -hmm. um, you know, talking about why vaccinations are important, especially for, for COVID vaccination and promoting that. They're gonna listen to their peer. Mm -hmm. and, and it was, it was so cool to see that. We saw the response um, and it, it's, it's really, again, from that, perspective, again, understanding those power dynamics, it's back to that humility of, I may know some of the content um, of this, but I may, I am probably not going to be the one that delivers it. So how mm -hmm. do we help empower those that can deliver it well, deliver it effectively? Um, that's one, you know, fun, great example, always makes me smile. Uh, but I think it's, it's really then finding those partners in the community, um, working with them, how is it that you empower them? Um, but, but starting first, how do you align and then empower mm -hmm. to be able to spread this kind of message to do that kind mm -hmm. of outreach?
That that is such a great example of a success. I, I love that. Um, and so we're kind of coming to our end. Is there if there's one other thing you want to share? And then I also want uh, the audience to know how they can get in touch with you or however it be. Uh, so if there's anything you would like to share, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'll I'll just end with this is you know, clearly for me this is wonderful work. It's very fulfilling. Um, and there's more we can do. And, and as long as we do it in partnership, in community with each other, it makes it very rewarding. Um, and in addition, I don't think we touched on it as much. There are many things we can begin to do and influence that start changing policy as well um, by demonstrating this great work. That's, that's, that's the ultimate piece of how do you make it so that structurally all of this is supported and it's, we're allowed, you know, we, it, it's the thing that you do, it's the default. So. Um, and so where can folks find me? Well, you're, you're all here on LinkedIn Live. So I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, you see my name is there. Um, my photo's all there too. Um, I think when I had longer hair. Um, and yeah, let's, I'd say that's the best place to reach, connect, and happy to chat. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for coming and sharing with us about health equity and holistic care. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Thank you. Appreciate it.